Hey everyone, Joel McCower here. This episode of Green Biz 350 was recorded just a few hours before Dylan and I learned of the passing of Queen Elizabeth. We learned about it as we walked through Liverpool Station in London and watched the reaction of others as they too learned about it in real time. Our hearts go out to the British public and all those around the world who respected and honored and revered Queen Elizabeth II. This episode is sponsored by Dev ESG. Dev ESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devvesg.com forward slash greenbiz. And this podcast is sponsored by Circle IT. Electronic waste only represents 2% of U.S. waste, but it's responsible for 70% of hazardous toxins in landfills. Don't let your former devices contribute to this growing problem. Instead, join the circular economy by sending them to Circle IT. Visit circleit.us to learn more. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in London, England. On this week's edition, Walmart gets halfway to its gigaton goal. Coke bubbles up sustainability finance for its suppliers. What Britain's new prime minister means for sustainability. And revving up a new fossil-free motorcycle. It's the wheel deal. This week on 350. It's September 9th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. As I said, I'm in London this week, and so is Green Biz senior analyst Dylan Siegler, who joins me now. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Joel. It's, uh, we're in London. We're here, uh, London's this week, Paris next week. Um, I know you got here not too much before we're recording this week's episode, but, um, Tell me about your relationship with London. Have you come here a lot? And uh, is it is it a good relationship? <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to spend my junior year of college here in the UK at Oxford and visited London quite a bit at that time. That was many, many more years ago than I want to admit. And so it's been a little bit of time since I've spent good time here. But I always like being here and um, uh, kind of appreciating the uh, the similarities and differences between the UK and the US culture. Yeah, I, I did not know that about you, that you had been here at Oxford, you and, and Grant Harrison, another uh, Oxford, um, not alum, but it's a, a attendee, I guess. Um, yeah, this is, uh, it, it is it's sort of interesting to come so far to some place so familiar in terms of language and customs, except for the whole driving on the left side thing and the close calls with death that seem to happen every uh, multiple times a day when you forget to look in the right direction. Um, but what's really also fascinating here is just uh, the sustainability scene. And um, we'll talk a little bit later with uh, James Murray, the uh, editor-in-chief of Business Green, sort of our our first cousin once removed over here on, on this side of the pond and, and talk about this historic week. Uh, new prime minister, 
um, not elected by the people, uh, <laughs> elected by pretty much 160 uh, mostly white men. And there's a lot of controversy about that. And uh, both good news and not so good news about what this means for sustainability. Um, but it's really been gratifying. Uh, you and I are running around seeing uh, some old friends and some new ones and um, spreading the word about what we're up to and learning uh, about what's going on here. But the big action is next week uh, as well. As much as this week has been delightful, um, even amidst the rain, um, the the birth, the kickoff of Green Biz Executive Network Europe coming up. Cannot wait to be in Paris and uh, join our colleague Laurie Gustavus in the launch of the GBEN Europe experience for everyone there. And it's, uh, I think it's shaping up to be a pretty exciting time. And we've got a packed house. Uh, it's one in, one out. Yeah, it's uh, we've got uh, 20 some companies who will be there, which is uh, meeting or exceeding our expectations. So more to come on that next week. But for now, the Week in Review. Let's begin this week, as many shopping trips do, with a trip to Walmart. Our colleague Jesse Klein, senior editor, wrote a piece about uh, Walmart reaching the halfway point of its Project Gigaton, which is its goal to uh, reduce or avoid 1 billion metric tons, or a gigaton, of greenhouse gases from its supply chain by the end of the decade. Um, Dylan, I know you've got some qualms or concerns or questions about this. Do tell. Well, first of all, I, I think we've now covered Walmart being some way to a goal or other um, various times over the past few weeks, which is good for them. And I think it's it's good for, for the earth um, for Walmart to be taking such ambitious efforts. The I think the conundrum of the supply chain, so what is it that suppliers need to actually get on board with climate action? Is it carrots or sticks? Is it education or finance initiatives? Um, I think the answer is that it depends. And so we'll, I, I know we've got another story in kind of a similar vein that we'll cover in a, in a few seconds. What I wanted to, what I wanted to draw out here is that Walmart is talking about both reducing and avoiding emissions. And so that might have sort of, um, you know, depending on your familiarity with with the terminology, that may sort of fly by some folks. But what what I think we're getting at here is reducing is actually, you know, for instance, using renewable energy to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases you're emitting. Avoiding is a little bit more complex. This is about the impact of products once they're out in the world. So how many times you wash a t-shirt, whether you send something to the dry cleaner, whether you uh, throw something away after one use. So the I think what we're talking about here is a very complex set of, of impacts that Walmart is trying to make. And um, some, are, <laughs> some of those impacts are, are perhaps more impactful than others. So what difference does it make to the planet if something's avoided or reduced? Well, that's the question. And I think Walmart is doing some some really complex uh, accounting and estimating. And they admit that they're doing some estimating in the background here because it's really difficult to know what happens to a product once it goes out into the world. We don't, you know, we don't um, 
tell Walmart what we do with our products. So they need to make some assumptions about what we're doing once we have that thing in our house. One of the other points that Jesse brings up in her piece is that to get to this halfway point, Walmart has likely grabbed uh, all the low-hanging fruit um, and uh, you know the easiest emissions um, and, and engage the most enga- committed suppliers. And the big question, of course, is over the next eight years, uh, it's because it's been 13 years into this uh, already, they've got eight years to go, will they be able to to, to get that other half, uh, the higher hanging fruit. Um, I think that's um, that, that, that will be a really interesting question. And I think a lot of companies will face similar kinds of things uh, as, they, as they go to reduce their emissions. That's right, Joel. And I think it's interesting that Walmart says, yes, we understand that the fruit gets higher from here on in, but what they're proposing to do is actually double down with the larger suppliers that are more engaged that they're already working with while they try and figure out those other kind of smaller suppliers further out in the longer tail. Well, maybe some of the solutions to that, Dylan, can be found in another piece that we ran this week, actually from our friends here at Business Green, Amber Rolt, a contributor over there. Um, about how Coca-Cola uh, and and Rabobank, a large uh, European uh, financial institution that focuses uh, on sustainable agriculture, has created a sustainability-linked loan for uh, its suppliers. This is a Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific partner, so it's one of the the, the franchisees uh, that uh, Coke has around the world. Um, and they're they're offering um, basically discounted financing rates if suppliers meet certain environmental and social goals. Sustainability-linked loans. That's a hard sentence to say for some reason. It's not rolling off my tongue. These kinds of loans are, are increasingly common, still pretty nascent, uh, but they are part of the toolkit uh, in, as we look to uh, for transition financing across the economy. Um, so this was just announced this week, and it's uh, designed to offer incentives and rewards for the its suppliers that deliver sustainability improvements in their companies. Um, and there's a bunch of key performance indicators that uh, if they meet, they'll uh, unlock incremental discounts against the initial funding rate. Um, I think this has a lot of potential here, and, and, and it seems to me that this is, you know, going back to Walmart, something they could be using too to, to get to that, that higher-hanging fruit. I think you're right, Joel. And this is one of those carrots that I think big companies can offer to their supply chains to say, um, just, you know, do a few of these things and all of these magical discounts can open up to you. Um, I I just wanted to note that if I were to name a bank, I wouldn't name it Rob a Bank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it I think it may translate slightly differently in in the original Dutch. But, um, you know, point well taken. Uh, that was like uh, when reminds me of when uh, General Motors introduced their first EV1. It was called the Impact. I don't know that that's something you want to name a car, but anyway. <laughs> but we digress. Um, so just to give a flavor, some of the boxes that the uh, suppliers have to tick uh, include uh, setting and validating the reduction targets with science-based uh, initiatives. Uh, committing to 100% renewable energy electricity across their operations and sharing their carbon footprint data and all of this by next year. Um, yeah, this this has, I think, high leverage potential. I agree. And I was interested to read in this story that 90% of this bottler's emissions are actually attributed to its supply chain. So that's a massive scope three impact. And so if just a few of these uh, suppliers 
can get on board, it can probably make a pretty big change in in what this Coca-Cola bottler here is doing. And that's actually pretty typical, 85, 90% in most sectors outside of energy production and a few others. So this is uh, does have high potential here. But let's move on to a third story we're going to talk about this week, also by Amber Rolt from Business Green. Uh, nice going, Amber. Uh, uh, very productive week about uh, Vattenfall uh, and uh, an, a new electric bike company, Cake, that have joined forces to create a fossil-free motorcycle. Uh, Vattenfall, for those who don't know, it's a uh, Swedish energy uh, company, as, as and uh, Cake is also a Swedish electric bike manufacturer. Um, they're, they want to build an entirely fossil-free electric motorcycle using what they call an innovative production process that will deliver, I love this, the cleanest dirt bike ever. Um, they haven't done this yet, but um, what, are you, what are you thinking about this? I really loved this story, Joel. And I, I think what I particularly loved about it is that we always have this conundrum in sustainability of what the role is of individuals. What can consumers do? What can our choices do to affect uh, the you know sustainability outcomes that we're all looking for and to solve for this existential threat of climate change? And so um, I, at least as a participant in the economy, I'm always looking for ways to do that, understanding that most of the movement really needs to happen at the corporate level, at the government level. So the idea that uh, uh, someone who's out in the marketplace looking to buy a motorcycle can make, well, soon will be able to make this choice to to consume this particular kind of dirt bike, I think it's a really it's a really cool uh, lever that can be pulled by people who might not have had that choice before. We don't know the price point for this bike. We don't know whether it's uh, Tesla priced or, or or where. But what what I loved about this piece, and it reminded me of another piece that ran in the New York Times uh, this week about how uh, electric vehicles are taking off in India, but they're of the two and four wheel variety. Um, and so while you know it, 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 we're in the in the states and and in here in, in Europe and the UK. Uh, looking at cars that can, you know, be 60, 70 or, or more thousands of dollars or even some cheaper ones that are in the twenty-five dollars to $40,000. In India, uh, where the the median income is just $2,400, they're selling uh, electric mopeds and three-wheeled rickshaw taxis for as little as $1,000. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see, uh, see these... Uh, uh, zip through cities where that have been just horribly polluted, um, and uh, and uh, and there's a whole industry that's cropping up around that of battery swapping. So if you're a rickshaw taxi driver, you know that uh, there's you know three or five places in your city where you can go in at certain times of day and swap out the battery for another one. You don't have to wait to evening to to recharge. Um, so there's a whole industry and an ecosystem that's evolving around that. And so I think. You know, we look at, a, at at back to Vattenfall and their electric bikes as you know maybe it's a luxury. Like why you know why talk about another thing that only well the elite well to do can afford? Uh, but a lot of these technologies do filter down, and I think we're starting to see that um, rev up uh, in in the, in the developing world, and that's a uh, uh, I think an exciting opportunity. Regular listeners of Green Biz 350 know that from time to time, 
check in with my friend James Murray over at Business Green in London. And being here in London, I get to be here with James Murray at the Business Green offices. Hey, James, great to see you in the flesh. Hi, Joel. Yeah, great to see you. Hope the, hope the trip's been good so far. It has. And it's an interesting week, uh, has been an interesting week here in London and the UK. A new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has stepped into the job. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering what, from the perspective that you and I work in and business and sustainability and the green economy writ large, what difference, if any, is Prime Minister Truss going to make? There are two quite competing schools of thought on this. So one is you just look at the fundamentals, you look at the fact that Europe's facing an energy security crisis, the only way out of it is to reduce our reliance on gas, in particular Russian gas, but also gas in general because how volatile the markets are. You look at the big picture trends in electric vehicles, in renewables, in all these other areas, and you kind of think she's not going to be able to slow it down too much. She's not going to want to slow it down too much. She's been absolutely clear that she does support the UK's net zero target, that she describes herself as a big supporter of renewables, uh, that she kind of wants an all of the above energy strategy, but that definitely does include clean energy and includes clean tech. Uh, she's very, she likes to position herself as very pro-business, very sort of economically liberal. So, you know, there's lots of reasons to think, while a few things might change around the edges, that you're not going to get a kind of derailing of the net zero agenda. That's the optimistic take. Yeah, I want to hear the other because as I've traveled around London this week, when I've mentioned Prime Minister Truss's just her name, uh, I get a certain amount of rolling of the eyes. And I'm wondering, what's that about? So, I mean, yeah, there is there is a very compelling counter take to that. The first thing to say is that, you know, she's coming into office at an appalling time. Enormous economic challenges for the UK, energy security challenges for the whole of Europe. She's not popular. I mean, the, the Conservatives as a whole are polling at their weakest level uh, in years. And her personal ratings are very, very poor. She was kind of the outsider. She wasn't the favourite to win. So there's a general sense of the country under real economic pressure and struggling. And then when you look at her approach to the environment and net zero, she hasn't been an environmental champion. She hasn't been massively engaged on climate change in her previous roles. She might contest that a little bit, but the truth is she's not of the green wing of the Conservative Party. She hasn't made it part of her pitch to voters in the way that Boris Johnson did, and to a lesser extent even David Cameron did and Theresa May did. She is also ideologically very close to the more climate sceptic wing of the party. I mean, she is, some of, some people have described her as the UK's first libertarian prime minister. She's probably the first prime minister of the UK who would be really quite comfortable with the economic side of, of Republican thinking in the US. She is a kind of small state, low tax, low regulation politician. That's where all her instincts lie. Um, and she's been very comfortable to have in her team uh, while she's never been sort of overtly climate sceptic herself, she's happy to have in her team some senior figures who are and have been highly critical of net zero. Now, again, you could argue that's a bit unfair because the person who's likely to be our chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, he's been very positive on net zero. Some of her other senior allies in the Conservative Party fully get the need to get to net zero. But, you know, there's talk that the business secretary will be Jacob Rees-Mogg, who for um, US listeners is a sort of a slightly sort of parodical figure here in the UK. He's sort of traditional sort of Victorian gent is how he dresses. And he's he's on the record with sort of parroting climate sceptic talking points. He's very pro-fracking. You know, he's anti what he terms windmills, which is obviously a surefire tell that you're not a big pro-renewables guy. Um, 
And then, and Truss has pandered to some of that. I mean, during her campaign, she was talking about how much she hates solar farms and thinks that solar solar farms on agricultural land should be banned because she likes the the idea that agricultural land should only be used for farming. Um, As many people pointed out, she's much more relaxed about golf clubs um, and golf courses, which take up far more land in the UK than solar panels ever have done. So if she's really worried about food security, why not act on that? so there is, you know, no one's quite sure how her kind of energy policy will break, what direction it will take. But there is this real concern that you've kind of got this this, this thinking that's a little bit antithetical to most best practice thinking on how you drive a net zero transition as quickly as possible. So this could go either way. You've, you've, you've talked about the fact that she's sort of on board with the current plan, and yet she has this sort of a, uh, let's just call it a Trumpian view of windmills and, and other things that, um, that uh, I think our listeners can relate to. What's the, what's the indicator that you'll be watching for in the next three, six months or 12, pick your time frame, uh, that will tell you which direction this may go? It's hard to tell. I mean, I, th- I think the most likely outcome is just a bit of a fudge. I mean, they're positioning it as kind of an all-of-above energy strategy, which, to be fair, Obama did as well. So I think we're going to see a lot of stuff that environmentalists are going to be very angry about. We're going to see her attempt to revive fracking in the UK, even though recent polling show only 4% of the public support fracking and the vast majority are fiercely opposed. Um, you're going to see more licenses for North Sea oil and gas drilling, even though most people accept that's not going to do anything to gas prices anytime soon. You're going to see a huge focus on how she deals with soaring energy bills. I mean, energy bills have gone up like four or five-fold in the UK in the last year. There is really severe concerns about a massive economic crisis this winter, both with businesses not being able to pay their energy bills and literally millions of households not being able to pay their energy bills. So what will her bailout package for that look like? She said she's going to sort of freeze prices and do things, but what's the detail of that? How do you actually do it? Um, So all of those are going to be huge, huge tests. But then equally, is she going to stay true to that sense of keeping the net zero strategy on on a course and, and, and driving forward renewables and offshore wind? Uh, I mean, there's a few sort of test points on that. One is, will she do anything more on energy efficiency? Like the case for energy efficiency has never been clearer with bills as high as they are, with the energy security threat that we face. You know, is she actually going to talk about saving energy and investing in energy efficiency? What could she actually do on energy efficiency? What would be the the government action? I mean, there's, there's numerous different things you could do. I mean, the first thing to say is that the UK has the leakiest homes, the leakiest buildings in the whole of Northern and Western Europe. Like there's, there's maps that show how much heat loss you get from a building and the UK is the worst rated. And that's not just because of our climate, because places like Norway and Sweden that are colder are better, Germany also. So there's a huge job to be done to improve them. And there are things you can do to improve them. There are government funded schemes that go in and help fuel pool households, social housing, just upgrade their homes. And that's paid through through taxation or through a levy on energy bills. You could massively expand them. The government promised that it would and still hasn't expanded them. There's other things you could do like loan schemes. And again, this is something that's happened in the US quite successfully. As I understand it, it's also happened in Germany, the Netherlands and other countries where you have low interest loans and you say to people, do you know what, if you go and put in a heat pump, or, or upgrade your insulation, that won't cost you anything up front and it'll be a relatively modest repayment plan. Um, again, you could do that. You could add incentives. You could have like we, um, you could have land tax stamp duty, as we have called it here in the UK. You could say if you upgrade your home, you get a massive tax break on that. There's lots of things. Or you could just talk about it. You could just publicly promote it and, and, and help us drive forward energy saving and make people aware that there's a need to energy save. So 
These are all things that haven't been being done over a long period. They all have an attractive payback. The payback's got a lot more attractive than it ever was before because energy bills are now so expensive, and yet the government hasn't really taken a lead on it. So that's that's one of the things you'll be looking for them to do. Um, and, and there are others. I mean, you, you know, they've talked about trying to shorten the planning approval process for offshore wind. Currently takes about four years. There's no reason why it couldn't take less than a year if, if you're really in an emergency situation. Uh, there's a pipeline of nuclear projects, um, which remain controversial in some quarters. But again, the government hasn't really fast-tracked getting the financing packages in place to get those built. Um, and, and these various other measures. And then the overarching one is earlier this year, a court ruled that the UK's net zero strategy is currently not up to standard. It needs to be more ambitious if it's going to be in line with uh, the legally binding climate targets that we have. Uh, The Committee on Climate Change, our official advisors, have ruled exactly the same and they've said, look, you've got to strengthen the plan. Will they strengthen the plan? And and they have to present to the courts whether or not they're willing to do that, uh, I think, within the next six months. So there'll be quite an early test on that front as to how serious they are about actually maintaining, and of course, maintaining is not enough, accelerating the UK's decarbonisation journey. Well, your courts are sound like a little bit more on the case than ours, which keep rolling things back. But a lot to watch here in the UK. Um, and uh, it, some of it sounds very, very familiar to those of us on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. But um, a lot of it is, is is unique to what sounds to be a rather scary winter. And so uh, best of luck with all of that. But thanks for the uh, the rundown. And it's, as I said, great to see you. Cool. Thanks so much, John. And uh, welcome, to, welcome to London. James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green here in London. Hey everybody, Dylan Siegler here from the Green Biz team, and I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Renee Lertzman. She's a psychologist and a strategist, and she spends her time asking, what does it mean for humans and for sustainability leaders in particular to confront the ecological crises that we're facing on an emotional and cognitive level? Renee, welcome to 350. Hey Dylan, happy to be here with you. Now, you advise and partner with organizations in this really tough area. So you're looking at how to lead and manage teams that are addressing really complex systemic challenges like climate change. What are some of the things that you help them learn how to do? Right. So it is incredibly challenging. Uh, I think many of us recognize that. And so what I do is I work with people around how do we basically relate with the experiences that we're having as leaders in the space and how do we bring as much uh, compassion and empathy and what I also call attunement to our own experience, right? So a lot of times we think of our emotional reactions to what's happening over here and then how we work and the work we do and our strategy and our planning over there. And what I do with teams and leaders is I really help us kind of appreciate that these aren't really separate, right? That how we are dealing with these issues is a big part of what it means to be effective, resilient, um, and really kind of stay grounded and in the zone when we need and want to be. This seems so necessary. Having been a practitioner for a lot of years, this really resonates with me. What got you interested in doing this kind of work? 
It started for me a number of years ago when I began to work with organizations across sectors all around the world. And I noticed that what was getting my attention when it comes to leaders who are really leading well and managing and guiding teams and organizations through massive change management uh, is, is really how they are showing up. And I started to notice this pattern around um, leaders and managers who demonstrate kind of a, a capacity for, uh, for staying grounded, but also humble, and how to stay in that place of really recognizing the complexity of the moment that we're in. And so over time, I just started to connect the dots between the inner work of how do we keep ourselves sort of regulated and in the zone with the outer work that we do. Uh, and for me, these, these realms of psychology and neuroscience and sustainability, and climate, ESG, are completely intertwined and interconnected. I love what you're saying about reconciling that inside and the outside. Uh, I think that's really important. Now, I know you've been speaking with sustainability practitioners about how they navigate these waters. Um, we have some audio to play. Um, set it up for us, if you don't mind. Um, what are we going to hear here? Right. So I had the opportunity and privilege to spend some time talking with Haley Lowry. So Haley is a leader. She is Global Sustainability Director at Dow. And uh, we had the chance to talk a bit more in depth about what her experiences are leading a global team, solving one of the most complex, seemingly intractable challenges of our time, which is plastics and packaging, uh, under tremendous pressure, both internally and externally. So I was really struck in particular in this conversation about what Haley had to say when it comes to being a leader today and how she relates to her role. So let's have a listen. And so some of those those pressures have been, you know, just even like uh, three of them come to mind, like inter internal tensions. So setting ambitious goals, but also a struggle of, we don't know how you're going to get there, mm -hmm. you know? And so that that um, not feeling comfortable launching something if you don't know exactly how you're gonna get there, but the need for high ambitious targets that stretch your organization. There's a natural tension that exists within that. Um, the second one is external tensions that you might feel, um, I, you know, investor circuits. The investor investment community is really trying to learn about ESG. They're pushing companies to do more. Um, but needing proof points of how are you going to get paid for this today? And, you know, conversations with NGOs. And I think there's this, this feeling that you're never winning and nothing is good enough. And there's a constant pressure, pressure for churn of what have you done for me yesterday? What have you done for me today? So I think even just taking time to pause and to reflect of the progress that, the team that I'm so proud that our team has made and still the journey that we're all going to go on together. Um, and then the last thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, moving from a small nimble team of subject matter expert experts to this being part of everyone's job. Um, that's a great thing in terms of your organizational evolution, 
but also it comes with a challenge of you're not in control of it and and actually having some organic ground roots activities happen in a totally different geography that you weren't aware of that's a great thing even if you weren't aware of it yeah and it's a totally different leadership style I would say it's a total, it's it, it, for all of the stuff, you almost have to flip mm-hmm. everything on its head. The way that you worked previously mm-hmm. um, is not going to be the way that's going to lead to success for the future. It's just, it's just not. What are you hearing Haley say here, Renee? So there's actually quite a bit to unpack here, but what's really standing out to me are a few profound themes that. I actually hear a lot of leaders uh, beginning to name and articulate, and and I think she does an amazing job here. So first off is that she's talking about tensions, right? And not only that, but she's talking about being comfortable with the tension. And that itself is about the mindset that we have in relation to our current conditions, right? So when we are able to look at, you know, how do we relate with the tensions, the paradox, the contradictions, the ambiguity, all of that, what she's saying is, hey, you know, part of what we're being asked to do as leaders is to find a new way of relating to what's happening where we're more comfortable with it, right? And that moves us from being in a reactive place into more of a proactive, responsive place in in relation to that. So, that's one thing. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is she sort of you know named off a, a, a variety of tensions. So she talked about the the tension that many of us are experiencing around goals and targets, and that we may not always know how to get there. Okay, when I hear a leader say that, I want to stand up and cheer because that is takes a lot of courage and bravery to say, hey, you know what? we're going to get there, but I don't know how right now. And that's why we need to be working together. That's why we need to be kind of, you know, crossing disciplines and all of that, but it's really powerful. And then the third thing she said that was really striking to me and what I loved is that she talked about how many of us in the space kind of grew up and came of age as part of a more nimble kind of smaller team of subject matter experts. And she's basically saying, you know what, (laughs) that those days are gone. Like we're in a new moment now where it's not just about us and our little team pushing and cheerleading. It's actually about everyone is now part of this. And how do we show up in a way that really enables everyone to feel a part of this, even when Frankly, you might know more about the topic than your colleague who just joined and is like, okay, you know, what is all of this about? Like, how do we create this really big tent? But the thing that she said that is super important that I don't hear named enough is about control. So what does it mean to let go of the control that we are used to having when you are leading your pod of experts and, and, um, people who have just spent a lot of time, you know, with this, with the material and the thing about letting go of control is that's a real part of this transition we're in of broadening and expanding and inviting people in. And I think the more we talk about it, the name and name that 
the better we are. And then the final piece here that, again, I just thought was so beautiful is that she talks about the need to take time to pause and reflect and consider the progress we've made. And she also acknowledged that many of us in the space feel that it's never enough. Everyone I talk to around the world working on the front lines of this work feel like, and I don't care if you're like at the top of your game or you're a startup or huge multinational, pretty much everyone I talk to, if you're honest, will say, I just feel like it's never enough. And how do we stay engaged? How do we stay motivated when we we just feel like uh, we don't necessarily see the, the impact of our work? And what Haley is talking about here is the power and the necessity to pause and reflect and take stock of what we are doing on a regular ongoing basis. I love that so much. And all of what she's what she's saying here really resonates with me. And as a control freak, I really get um, I really get that piece. I also get that need to go further and faster. We have to go further and faster. And I think we're all really impatient. We see the urgency. It's all around us. The you know, the evidence is always right in front of us um, as people who are tuned into this. So um, that really makes sense. Let's give a listen to one more clip from Haley about how she's navigating these issues. Surrounding yourself by really great team also is helpful that that you can be honest and transparent and vulnerable with each other of, whoa, today has been hard and being those buoys for each other. Mm. Um, my uh, my brother and sister-in-law um, gave me a buoy keychain and they said, you know, you have been such a buoy for us when we start to spiral down. Mm. And I think as long as one person is the buoy, you're okay. People can spiral and you can have tough days and tough situations and setbacks and, you know, resistance. But somebody's one person has to be the buoy. Great. So what are your takeaways from that, Renee? I think that's what's happening uh, for many of us is that we're having to flip the script about what it means to be a leader right now. And specifically on climate, sustainability, ESG, SDGs, we're realizing more and more the power of showing up as more open, vulnerable, and willing to say, I don't know, right? But we will figure it out together. Um, and and this is what I'm seeing is this, this um, you know, new approach, this, this question that she's asking, that we're all asking, what is, what is this time asking of us, right? And, you know, what I love to quote as much as I can now is this, is this line from Amy Edmondson, who some of you may know as the author of The Fearless Organization, you know, famous scholar on psychological safety. Um, and this line that she has is, it's hard to learn if you already know. And it's really hard to practice that because we're in a moment where there's a lot of pressure on us to, to know and to guide and to lead um, amidst a lot of pressure and uncertainty. But it comes back again to what Haley acknowledges as flipping the approach on its head. And, and I love her phrase, you know, we have to turn everything we thought about leading on its head. That's, that's pretty profound. And I think it's a really gracious invitation to all of us to kind of think about how we're stepping into this moment differently and together. 
Thanks so much, Renee, for bringing us, us your powerful work and for joining us on 350. We are looking forward to having you back really soon to hear more from you on this topic. Thank you so much. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about organizations, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. As always, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather Clancy and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Sincere thanks to Dylan Siegler for sitting in with me the past three weeks. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by DevESG. DevESG helps organizations create, capture, certify, and convert ESG assets into real value to solve your plastic, methane, carbon, and energy problems. For more information, visit www.devvesg.com forward slash greenbiz. And this podcast is also sponsored by Circle IT. With Circle IT's digital solution and one-click data erasure, it's easy to securely and sustainably offload your unused laptops and electronic devices. Give it a test drive free of charge. Visit circleit.us, click on Circle My Device, and use the code CircleITRemote2022. That's CircleITRemote2022. Thank you.